It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Janice Dean. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, March 24th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. Inflation is part of the landscape for this year's midterm elections and in a governor's race that could be a high-profile rematch. People are tired of the hypocrisy. They want steady leadership. They want more of the same in Georgia with a great economy, and uh, that's what I'm going to be talking to people about. We speak with Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp. I'm Dave Anthony. Russia's war on Ukraine is now in its fifth week. Not going nearly as well as many military experts expected. Most of us who looked at the situation certainly thought uh, that the Russians would be an overmatch for the Ukrainians. And uh, we would never be in a stalemated position at this point. And I'm Paul Batura. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. There's no sugarcoating what's still obvious at the grocery store and the gas pump. Inflation is high and not transitory. The inflation outlook had deteriorated significantly this year, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Less than a week after the Federal Reserve's first interest rate hike in more than three years, Fed Chief Jay Powell making clear he's not expecting healing on the supply side of the U.S. economy anytime soon, and that this year's policy decisions will not be based on inflation forecasts. We will be looking to actual progress on these issues and not assuming significant near-term supply-side relief. Also reiterating in a speech this week, the central bank could raise rates more quickly if needed, aiming to bring inflation back down to its target range within three years. So it's entrenched as a campaign issue this year, no matter how often President Biden blames the Russian president, especially for gas prices. People are really hurting from the Biden administration. Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp recently signed a bill suspending the state gas tax through May 31st. It's something he's done before, after natural disasters or other events, including last year's Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. Right now, hoping to ease the impact of higher prices on Georgia families. This has been going on for a long time, long before the war in Ukraine. And we're trying to help people survive this 40-year high inflation that we've been seeing with suspending a gas tax for a couple of months to give them some relief at the pump. We're also in the process of doing that over a billion dollars of tax refunds to our citizens because the government had more money than we needed in our amended budget this year because we reopened the economy before anyone else kept most of our economy going the whole pandemic as we protected both lives and livelihoods and budgeted conservatively. And so these are the things we're doing to help our citizens really cope with the Biden inflation. Are you concerned at all that suspending the gas tax could actually, you know, exacerbate the inflation problem? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, look, people are hurting right now. You know, I'm a small business owner, still are. I talked to one of my partners yesterday and he said people aren't coming in the retail part of our store right now because the economy's slowing down a little bit because of the rise of inflation and people are being very careful about where they spend. And that's not what we want the mindset to be in Georgia. We have an incredible economy right now. We're having a record year for job growth, economic development, and other things that are going on in our state. We're going to stay focused on that. And relief at the pump is only going to help our small business owners and working families continue to live as normal a life as they can 
with 40-year high Biden inflation. One other question about the gas tax suspension, because it does mean a hit to state tax revenue, temporarily at least. So that can mean dipping into surplus, not having as much for transportation projects. Is the savings worth the cost for Georgians? Well, if you understand what we're doing in Georgia, you know, we are replacing the money with one-time savings. As I said, we had more money than we needed this year, so we're offsetting. The transportation funding and everything is going to be made whole through this proposal. This is simply us budgeting conservatively during the pandemic, keeping our economy open and reopening before most other states did. So that we have strong revenues and additional money that's one-time money, and we're using it to offset the gas taxes in our state. So our road projects and transportation funding is going to continue. Nothing's going to miss a beat there, and that's what's so great about this proposal. And the best thing is we were one of the first states to do this. The Republican primary in the governor's race is only about two months away now. You have the edge over former Republican Senator David Perdue in a Fox News poll, but he has the support of former President Trump. Has that been an obstacle in any way as you reach out to voters? Well, listen, I can't be concerned what other people are doing in my reelection campaign. You know, I'm the current governor. I'm running for re-election on a strong conservative record. I've been reminding people that for the last three years, I have been doing exactly what I promised them, making Georgia the best state in the country for small business, budgeting conservatively. We've cut taxes last year. We're cutting taxes for military retirement this year. We're working on reducing the state income tax. You know, we've given the largest teacher pay raise in state history. We've been going after street gangs and street racing. And we have just an incredible economy, lowest unemployment rate in the history of our state. And so that's what I'm talking to people about. That's what people are concerned about. And I'm not focusing on things that I can't control. Economic issues are certainly at the top for Georgians in that Fox News poll. What are people saying to you? Are are those things that your administration has done, are they resonating with people? Oh, absolutely. I mean, most people I'm seeing are thanking me, thanking me that for well over a year and a half ago, I kept our economy open and was the first state to reopen. Under heavy criticism, I might add, from the national media, Stacey Abrams and a lot of other people, and even when big companies and Major League Baseball tried to cancel our business environment over the strongest elections integrity act in the country that we passed that makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat in Georgia, I didn't waver. And because of that, thanking me because they've had a job they've been able to provide for their family they had you know a normal college football season and people were able to go to soccer games and basketball practice and graduation ceremonies for their kids here in our state and they're just thankful that in georgia they have liberty and freedom and you know that's really what i'm hearing on the campaign trail and i told them look you keep me as governor you're going to get more of it Governor Kemp's record is under attack, though. Fellow Republican David Perdue, who lost his Senate seat in a runoff last year, accuses Kemp of being a sellout. Right now, we've got to stand up, and this is a perfect example of where career politicians stop listening to people like you and me. He's appealing to the conservative base ahead of a May primary, and former President Trump is set to campaign with Purdue in Georgia this weekend, just over a year since calling on Kemp to resign for refusing Trump's insistence that the 2020 election results be overturned. Democrat Stacey Abrams, who narrowly lost to Kemp in 2018, had accused him then of voter suppression and says she is running for governor again because she believes in Georgia. I believe in one Georgia, not the divisions 
and the divided Georgia that we see today. She's become a leading voting rights advocate, writing several books. Does that change anything for Kemp if it's a rematch? Well, look, I've been preparing to run against Stacey Abrams uh, again for three years, and that is what I have my sights set on to make sure she never becomes governor. And by the way, hopefully she never becomes our president as well, because that is her ultimate goal. People know who the real Stacey Abrams uh, is now. She's the product of Hollywood and, you know, billionaire fundraisers from around the country that are fueling her radical agenda to defund the police and raise taxes. So people are tired of the hypocrisy. They want steady leadership. They want more of the same in Georgia with a great economy. And uh, that's what I'm going to be talking to people about. And they know my record now where is in 18. They didn't know mine very well, and they certainly didn't know who she really is. And I, I think you'll see a lot different result than you did last time as far as how close the race was. We're excited about winning again. Her campaign, the Abrams campaign, is has filed a lawsuit over fundraising, basically arguing it's not fair that she hasn't been able to take advantage of a new state law, at least not yet, um, hinging on whether she's officially the party's nominee yet. What would you say to any voters who might think that your campaign has had you know, some kind of unfair advantage so far? Well, I would tell them that Stacey Abrams and David Perdue, who line up and agree on this issue, which is pretty pitiful, uh, are being hypocrites because they're raising right now money right now for their campaign when my campaign is prohibited from doing that because we're in the middle of our legislative session. You know, what we're doing in Georgia is trying to compete with the outside dark money from Hollywood and from billionaire fundraisers and supporters of hers like George Soros and many other radical people. And that's what David Perdue's lining up with, which is insane. It's hurting our whole Republican ticket all the way down. I'm not sure why he's doing that, but I can't control that. What we're doing is trying to win every day to have the resources that we need to win this re-election, but also help the whole Republican ticket. In recent gubernatorial elections, parents have become an important voting block, really heading to the polls as advocates for the kind of leadership and policies they want in schools. Do you think your record on education will bring parents out to vote for you? Oh, no question about it. We're pushing through right now with my floor leaders carrying the parental bill of rights legislation to make sure our kids are not indoctrinated in our schools, fairness in school sports, uh, making sure that our parents are part of the children's education and they're making their health care decisions as well, uh, which is in complete reverse of what the Democrats wanted nationally. I mean, it all started in the Virginia governor's race where, you know, Terry McAuliffe said he believes that the bureaucrats know better about your children than the parents do. And that's the way the Democrats treated us during the pandemic. They don't trust citizens to be part of the solution. They feel like government has to be the solution to everything. And that's not what Georgians want. And I think they'll reject Stacey Abrams for that because, you know, she's not going to be for school choice. She's not going to be for parents deciding what's best for their children. She's going to be for what the teachers unions want. And she's going to be for the woke cancel culture politics of today. Thankfully, that's not going to work in the great state of Georgia. Is education an issue that can help Republicans gain back some support that's maybe slipped in the suburbs of Georgia? Well, I think if you look at what the real vote totals were on November 3rd and the legislative candidates that had run on being strong on education, on what my agenda is, uh, largest teacher pay raise in state history and many other things that we did, 
They had a great night November 3rd. We kept strong majorities. Our legislators had strong wins against the Democratic incumbents. And it's because they were talking about kitchen table issues that our citizens care about, making sure that parents have a role in their child's education. And we're going to have more of the same that we've been implementing over the last two years to get ready for this election cycle. And so that's what we're going to be running on again. One last thing, Governor, what would you say to any voters who have any concerns at all about election integrity, about voting rights? Democrats have made such a point of criticizing states who have put reforms in place and made any changes since the 2020 presidential election. Well, the Democrats have really just been using code words to try to message on this topic, calling our Elections Integrity Act Jim Crow 2.0 and suppressive and even rolling out Joe Biden to lie about the legislation. Uh, Thankfully, I've stood up every single time and pushed back against that narrative. I've told people the truth, that our bill makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat. I've called the Democrats out for lying to people and explaining that we actually expanded opportunities for people to be able to vote, especially on the weekends during early voting. But we also did common sense things like tying the voter ID to our absentee ballot process. I think we have the strongest Elections Integrity Act in the country. And I think Republican primary voters and I believe Georgia voters appreciate the fact that we have a process in Georgia that's very accessible. The fact is the Democrats have overplayed their hand and uh, it's going to be a great issue for us come November. Well, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, we thank you very, very much for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. This is Paul Batura with your Fox News commentary coming up. It's now week five of Russia's invasion and Ukraine is far from giving up. If freedom has a name, its name is Ukraine, and the Ukrainian flag is the flag of freedom today. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is the U.S. and our allies talk again with President Biden at NATO headquarters in Brussels today, readying new sanctions on Russia. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. A substantial topic of conversation, a major priority for both the president and his European allies is to reduce the dependence of Europe on Russian gas. Well, all that economic punishment so far hasn't stopped Russia, as it keeps bombarding many cities, killing civilians, leaving many more without power or heat or water. Yet Ukrainians fight back harder than ever. Most of us who looked at the situation certainly thought uh, that the Russians would be an overmatch for the Ukrainians, and uh, we would never be in a stalemated position at this point. General Jack Keane is a retired four-star general, Fox News senior strategic analyst, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. The Russians have been unable to take any major city in Ukraine and certainly have not been able to accomplish their political objective, which was to topple the regime and install a government, a Ukrainian government, friendly to Russia. So that that is actually stunning uh, where, where we are. And two major indicators uh, 
we didn't account for uh, very well, and that is the, the performance of the Russian military is sig- has significantly underperformed, and also uh, the performance of the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian people has nothing been short of uh, remarkable. All right, I want to go through both of those. First, start with Russia. Are, is Russia underperforming or... For all these years, have we over-evaluated them, overrated Russia's military capability? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, Dave, because we did during the, uh, during the Cold War as well with the Soviet Union, and we didn't realize how much we had overrated them until they collapsed. And we definitely had overrated them. And here we did the very same thing buying into Putin's propaganda that he's been putting out, particularly the last 10 years, Dave, where he's been claiming to professionalize his military and lording over these capabilities that he has. And, yeah, we absolutely uh, overrated our intel agencies, uh, got it wrong, and most analysts uh, and observers like myself um, got it wrong for sure. Russia does things differently. We would never in a war situation, do what they do in these cities like Mariupol, where they're just bombing indiscriminate apartment buildings and trying to seemingly kill civilians to break their will. They have a different way of doing that, but they're not breaking the Ukrainians' will like they thought, I think. No, that's very true. They're not. The Russian way of war does involve, as a military objective, not just uh, defeating the military they're fighting, but actually defeating the people. And that is part of their assigned military objective. The other thing is the performance of the Ukrainian military. And we underestimated that. Yeah. Um, they, they have, they are, their skill sets, their absolute determination and drive that they have. I mean, they have considerably more will than the Russians have. I mean, the there's two reasons why the Russians are losing generals and regimental commanders at a rate that's uh, quite extraordinary. One is that the Ukrainians have been able to figure out where their headquarters are because they're not operating on secure uh, radio nets. And, and secondly, the, because of the combat refusals that have taken place inside the Russian organizations, the commanders have had to go down to those tactical organizations and literally push them forward, order them forward. And and that, that put them uh, more in jeopardy, obviously, uh, in being in those locations. A pro-Kremlin Russian tabloid reported this week, nearly 10,000 soldiers have died, another 16,000 Russians wounded. Ukraine's president has at times appealed to them directly. You can still save yourselves if you just go home. Volodymyr Zelensky adding, Do not believe your commanders who say that you will still have a chance in Ukraine. Nothing but prison and death awaits you here. There are also reports many Russian soldiers have suffered frostbite. And there are supply issues from fuel to ammunition to food. A video out of Ukraine shows Russian soldiers looting stores. And there are reports of low morale among the ranks. Yeah, well, there definitely are significant morale problems uh, due, to, due to the lack of adequate supplies, uh, for sure. But I also think it's a lack of proper training and discipline. Uh, they don't display the skill sets that you would think that, that they would have, and therefore they lose a lot of the 
a lot of the uh, the fights that they're getting in with the uh, Ukraine military. One of the indications of, uh, of of the morale of the organization is that they're not recovering their debt, and and I, I found that that's astounding. They're just leaving them in place, uh, and that wears on an organization. In, in the American military, to understand how strongly we feel about this, uh, we will we will risk the lives of our soldiers to recover a teammate who was killed. And, and that has happened time and time again to us. One, one thing that complicated this from the outset, uh, when you look conceptually at the campaign plan, Dave, the fact that they were going to attack on four separate axes, neither one of those axes supporting each other, all requiring their individual logistical support and all requiring their own air support, was far too ambitious. Yeah, I remember seeing you on the channel, General, talking yeah. about that. I, I remember seeing you questioning and not understanding the way it was approached. And I also, when we were getting going, there was this 40-mile-long convoy that was headed toward Kiev, and it was considered, oh, boy, here we go. They're about to flatten the capital. And then it didn't move. And then... What happened? They were like sitting ducks for the Ukrainians to, to just continue to fire at. What happened to that? You know, it, it, it was astounding. And uh, we spent a lot of time in the Institute for the Study of War taking a look at that. And if you're going to move down a road and where eventually you're going to make contact with the enemy, you would send another organization that's doing reconnaissance for you on the ground, supported by drones and aerial cover. And they would be in a formation. They would not just be single file because they would be ready to react to contact. And, and so then their job would be identify where the enemy is and fix that enemy before the main body came along. So they did not do any of that. Yeah. And we've also had a lot of questioning about the capability of the Russian Air Force. And I read a story where one thing is different between the U.S. and Russia. Their pilots don't get an actual lot of time in the air doing training and aerial practice. And maybe that's yeah, showing it, in Ukraine. And it is. And they've never had to go up against an air defense system uh, of any consequence. By that, I mean long-range missiles where radars can detect uh, any airplanes flying. This is what the Ukrainians have. And then uh, direct those missiles uh, against that system. And they have a command and control o overseeing all of that. And those, uh, those systems are still operating so that they can't deal with complicated air operations at all. So we are four weeks in now, starting week five. Now there's discussions again about whether or not Russia might use a chemical weapon. President Biden says there's a real, real threat of that. And then the NATO leader said there would be consequences. And then NATO leader Jens Stoltenberg said this, and I want to play this for you, General, and get your reaction, because Russia's not ruling out the use of a nuclear weapon. Russia must understand that a nuclear war should never be fought and, never, and they can never win a nuclear war. Do you think Russia really understands that? Oh, yeah, I, I definitely think they do, yes. Look, there's ways to deal with this, uh, plenty of options. Let's give you an option, Dave, so the audience can understand. We can run a strike in into Ukraine as a result of the Russians using chemical weapons inside Ukraine, take out something that they value there that is re likely related to the use of the chemical weapons, maybe uh, air power infrastructure at one of their airfields that they're operating out of Ukraine, and we can do that without ever having to enter into Ukraine airspace. 
We don't have to risk a single pilot to do any of that. Uh, so that that can be done, and we don't have to declare war on Russia to do it either. But if he did use a nuclear weapon, is that is would we have to go after him? Would we have to try to stop him personally? Yes. Well, we would. I don't think we go after him personally, but we would have to react to the use of a nuclear weapon. I cannot imagine NATO and and uh, the United States as a part of NATO not responding to the the use of a, of a nuclear weapon. I mean, my God, help us all if we. Uh, if we weren't prepared to, to deal with that. But you don't expect that. No, I do not. I mean, the simple analysis of anything like that certainly means that Putin loses just as much as we would lose. I mean, it's just nobody wins in, a, in that scenario. Do you think he still could win Ukraine, or has he really lost it at this point? I don't think we know the answer to that. I mean, it is, it is a genuine stalemate. His ground campaign has not been successful. And his air campaign and some of his artillery use, because he's focused on on rubbling cities and killing people who are within them, uh, has been somewhat successful. So if he buckles down and continues to grind this out over time, which is questionable whether he can or not, Dave, because uh, if you believe the casualty rates he's at, he's up to uh, over 10 percent of his force being uh, being hurt by this, and you can't afford a casualty race like that. I mean, that's more casualties we took in the Normandy invasion, by far. You, you can't sustain that. So there's a lot of question marks as to how far he can go and also, you know, how far the Ukrainians can go. That's why at this NATO meeting, I mean, they have got to really commit to sustaining the Ukrainians and giving them the, the arms and equipment that they really need and being able to stay, sustain the volumes uh, that they need. It's been critical, and it's been decisive in helping them. I mean, they have the will, just give them the capability to exercise that will. And, and that's what we've been doing. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, Fox News strategic analyst, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. Always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, great talking to you, Dave, and your audience. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Patera. 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 What's on your mind? She was born Marie Jana Korbalova, the daughter of a government diplomat in Czechoslovakia and a member of a family forced to flee Hitler's wrath at the start of World War II. As a little girl, she spent nights in bomb shelters and under a kitchen table as the Luftwaffe indiscriminately strafed civilian neighborhoods in England. She saw war and death and too much of both. Little Marie survived the war and returned with her family to Prague, but communism and Marxism were on the march. Her concerned parents sent her to a school in Switzerland, then to London, and finally to America. 
Marie soon discovered that anything is possible here in the United States, even growing up to become the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in the early 90s, and then the first female Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton during his second term. That woman, Madeleine Albright, who died Wednesday at the age of 84, found her way from bomb shelters of World War II to the bright lights of Washington, D.C., and the highest stakes diplomatic circles of the world. Throughout her career, Madeleine Albright counseled Presidents Carter and Clinton, as well as advising former Vice President Walter Mondale and Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. She was a woman of the world. In addition to her native Czech and English, she spoke fluent Polish, French, and Russian. There's no question Secretary of State Albright's political ideology and worldview, then and now, would put her at odds with her conservative counterparts on many issues. During her tenure, she navigated a wide range of international crises involving Bosnia, Kosovo, Haiti, Northern Ireland, and the Middle East. She supported the expansion of NATO. She advocated for military action to stop genocide in the Balkans. But she failed to stop the proliferation of North Korea's nuclear program and terrorism in Africa. Historians will forever debate the advice she gave the president. Time and circumstance will ultimately render a final verdict. Progressives of today like to run down the United States, but where else in the world can a little girl run from the evils of Nazism and right into the Oval Office in our nation's capital to advise the president? Regardless of where your political loyalties may lie, the remarkable trajectory of Madeleine Albright's life is another reminder of just how exceptional America is and just how exceptional America has always been. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform. And watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.